What's up, everyone? We are back live. This would be episode 21 of the Strength and Success podcast. The pec flexor to my right is Riley Presnell. I am Trevor Jaffe. And this one is called Action Alleviates Anxiety. We thank are, you, thank you for uh, thank you for not asking me to tell you what the name of the episode was because I had already forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> episode twenty one, the book. Uh, <laughs> don't put Riley on the spot. She needs to be planned and prepared ahead of time. So, but uh, Action Alleviates Anxiety. We're back at our normal time on Thursdays at one thirty. Hopefully this maintains. Um, life's a little bit more normal now. My son is through summer school. If you didn't know, I had to live in a hotel for six straight weeks for him to pass summer school and get through because he had to be in person. Both his mother and I moved away from the area, so that was a fun, not so fun experience to have every single meal out. Um, we're home now. He is registered. Orientation was today, and I didn't kill him. Success. That's a great success. <laughs> a great success. All right, we've already got the Borat out of the way. Uh, so episode 21, Action Alleviates Anxiety. If you haven't heard, we are launching our supplement company, Culture Nutra, which is actually Culture Nutraceuticals, but Culture Nutra is the brand name. It launches officially the 9th, which I believe is Sunday? Monday? Monday. Monday. Actually, when this episode goes live. So when this episode, the podcast recording yeah. itself goes live Monday, Culture Nutra will be live at Culture Nutra. Dot com is the website. We have a full product line coming out. Some of them are still being released in there. And so we wanted to talk about how action alleviates anxiety because, of course, we came up with the idea, the concept, and then you have to put the money down to create the company and do things and you take that investment and all of a sudden you freak out. <laughs> <laughs> but as each step along the way gets done and closer and closer to the launch date and you start to see that people are responding very well to it and doing great and it's going to do very, very well and cover itself and hopefully be a profitable venture for both of us and something that we can give back to the community. You know, we're looking to have like giveaways and, and hopefully sponsor meets or sponsor athletes, whatever it comes to. But as the company grows, we will grow with that. But that first step came with taking the chance, you know? So action alleviates anxiety, and most people are scared of the what if, but never take the step, and every step along the way made the process a little smoother, because it was like, hey, that's one more thing we can check off our list that we've gotten done. Yeah, and I think if you're doing it, so in in our partnership, uh, Trevor tends to get a little bit more stressed out quicker than no, I do. No. Um, and I'm a little bit more of the like, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll adapt. We'll figure it out kind of as we go sort of thing. And there were a couple things that popped up when we initiated the brand that were like very annoying, you know, it's just like you run into like a little bit of a roadblock and think people are like, oh, you can't do this. You can't do this. And so you had to fix this and this didn't go through the, the way that you wanted it to. And it didn't turn out exactly how you wanted it to. And you kind of just have to take those things in stride and be like, okay, that's fine. Everything is figure outable. Like that's generally the um, thought process that I have with anything new that I'm taking on is like, okay, this is something totally new that we have never done before. You mm -hmm. know, like we've never started a supplement brand before. Um, you know, like uh, Trevor loves supplements. He likes to read up on them. He likes to learn about them. Um, <laughs> hi Leo. There's the troublemaker. Oh, oh no. I hope we didn't knock us off the recording. Um, you know, <laughs> so I don't think he did. All right. Um, so, this is Leo. This is the third partner of the podcast. Excuse me, sir. Leo the lion. Hi. Um, so, you know, this is something that we've never done before, but we both love, uh, supplements and Trevor reads up on a lot of them, likes to learn about a lot of them. I ran supplement stores for like seven years, I think. Um, so it's a natural progression, I feel like for us. And we've always wanted like a physical brand, um, either individually or together. And I think that this is a really cool way to do that because we can help athletes improve their performance. Um, <laughs> 
and also you know provide like a quality product and put some put our name to something so that way we have um, something that we can call our own and that can be like frustrating a frustrating process because <laughs> anyone who's <laughs> sorry anything happens when you go live <laughs> sorry anyone that's listening to the podcast uh, Leo was just assaulting my face assaulting her face yeah um so, you know, you would just have to take each step in stride. And like, if someone was like, hey, you can't do that or you have to fix this instead of being like, oh, can't do it anymore. Everything's everything's fucked. You know, you can't fix everything. You just say, OK, how do we fix this? How do we right. keep moving forward or pivot and change directions? Yeah, you just got to roll. You just have to like roll with the punches and like taking action can sometimes cause a little bit more anxiety. But the end result of the action generally does alleviate the anxiety. Like yeah. actually taking the steps itself can be kind of like daunting to be like, okay, these are the next, I'm a, I'm kind of a planner. So like I had a lot of these like steps written down and we would talk about like what we have to do next and what's important. And, and the timeline went out the window. Like what oh, was yeah. supposed to be four months ended up being seven. Yes. Yeah. Like we've been, uh, I think I answered this. On the, seven and a half. Yeah. I think I answered this on the pod or on the, my story is that. You know, like we've been talking about this for probably over a year, but we didn't actually get the initial ball rolling. Until and it wasn't February. even the initial product that we were looking to do initially. Yeah. yeah. And it just, it you pivot, you pivot, mm -hmm. and you keep going, you try to get forward momentum and you check things off the list and you keep going from there. And it's just what we decided on and grew to, to love and found, you know, a distributor and, and a manufacturer and started to really like a lot of these products that I was already using. And it really is another thing created a feeling that when you're using your own, you know, pre-workout and your own brain and, and your joint. own protein and joint support, it's like yeah. really, really cool that I'm opening up these bottles and I own this. It's like yeah. awesome. So the, the anxiety is significantly lower as we are getting ready to launch. But along that journey, there was a lot of things that you weren't counting on that popped up mm -hmm. and that's okay because it didn't derail the goal. It just delayed the goal. Yeah. And you know, there's never, there's always going to be continued anxiety. Like I'm, I'm generally an... I'm a planner, but I'm an overthinker too. So I will like, I probably asked Trevor like six different hypothetical questions in the last week about like, well, what if we did this? And what if this happens? And what if this doesn't happen kind of thing? Just kind of because I like to plan things from all sides. But you know, like the anxiety of a new venture is never going to go away. The anxiety of trying something new is never going to go away. Um, but as soon as you take the first steps, it does start to be like, okay, I can do this. You know, like I can take on this task and I can figure it out as I go. And you know, there are going to be growing pains. Like, you know, we've already even asked like, uh, questions about like, are we going to do a vegan protein in the future? Which we, we probably will do a vegan protein or adding different flavors. Like people have asked about, there's gonna be multiple flavor options and things like that. And these are all things that we're probably going to do eventually, but you have to start off with something, right? right? So just we're start. just, yeah. And that's what we did is we just, we picked the core products that we wanted to start with. And as we grow and evolve as a brand, we will continue to grow and evolve the brand. Right. Things will change, things will come, things will go, mm -hmm. labels might change, products might change, over time things will happen. And uh, it just it started, because this kind of reminds me of one of the questions that was in my Q&A yesterday in my story, was somebody asked about a first year powerlifter, how many meets should they do that first mm -hmm. year? And I was like, all of them. Yeah. Uh, it's something Jordan Wong always talks about because he owns a gym and they're all first time powerlifters in the first year. And he's like, do every single meet that comes up. And people are like, well, why are you, how are you going to progress? It's like, it's not about progression at that point. It's about experience and learning what meat day is like, learning how to have a bad meat and realize it's just one bad day, the, the mm -hmm. life's not over, you had a bad day. Uh, learning what to do if there's a crappy warm-up room or if the platform's running slow or things are wrong. You get all that shit out of the way up front by doing something. Action alleviates anxiety, mm -hmm. you get out of the way and then you're never nervous again in year two for the next meat that comes up and you've been training longer and you've got more experience. You know what to expect. 
when you don't know what to expect is when you get anxious. Yeah. So if you take action and keep doing things and keep doing things, even if there are bad situations, you get resilient to that yeah. negativity and it doesn't bother you as much. Like we've gone through so much in life that all these little things that kept popping up, these little red flags or, or delays or product problems and things like that didn't bother me that much. Even with my life as a, like, a wreck on the side with dealing with Titus' school situation, like it wasn't that big of a deal because like, okay, here's our next thing. Here's plan B, here's plan C, here's the word. what she said. She likes the plan. So, you know, that, that constant forward action alleviated anxiety. Yep. I think that, that what you put up in the story um, was probably a good thing to retouch on with um, how often should like a new new mm-hmm. athlete compete. Because um, I feel like we can elaborate on that. And like I coach a lot of beginner athletes too. And, you know, I feel like there's one of two people that going into their first meet. Right. There's either the person that has is like just so excited to finally just step on the platform and get it done. And they're like, yeah, I don't even care what the numbers are. I just want to get it out of the way and have fun. And they generally do great because that's all that they're aiming to do is have fun. They're just aiming to put up the total and get the first total. And they understand that that's the starting off point. They understand that that's their very first total and it's going to continue to grow. Sometimes it may regress. Sometimes it'll progress, you know, whatever. Right. Everything's not always linear, but you know, like those people are really, really excited and they're just so stoked and they're like, yeah, I just want to have fun with my friends. I just want to finally get it out of the way and whatever. And then there's the other end of the spectrum with them where it's like the person wants to have a perfect day. They want to go nine for nine. They want to hit lifetime PRs and everything. They want to set the state record. They want to be ranked, whatever. They want to do all these things. Yeah, I can't compete until I'm strong enough to win. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, they're like, I have to go home with a medal. And like, I get that, like, you know, I get that reaching state national world records are a motivating factor i'm not discrediting anyone for that i'm not discrediting anyone for wanting to win a medal even but like if you're putting so much pressure on yourself for your first meet you're probably going to fizzle out very very quickly and that's something that i have to remind um a few lifters of all the time is like hey this is supposed to be fun like we elect to do this sport because we want to do it not because anyone's forcing us to do it uh Hardly any of us are getting paid for actually powerlifting. You know, like coaches obviously have their own side business or whatever, but they're not getting paid to physically lift a barbell enough to support their families, you know? So we're all choosing to do this. And if you're going into your first meet with the expectation that you have to be the greatest uh, thing to whoever, you know, like you have to rank blah, 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 and you have to beat blah, 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 you're going to burn out very quickly. And I've seen that happen. Like I've had a couple lifters in the past who have done, you know, two or three meets and every meet they put so much pressure on themselves to have like this high standard. And when it goes wrong, they burn out. And a couple of those aren't even power, people aren't even powerlifting right now, you know, because they put so much immense pressure on themselves to be 100% the best at everything and, you know, have make no mistakes and be perfect and blah, blah, blah. And now they don't even powerlift. So I think that that's really important that as a beginner, you just, just do a meet. Yeah. Throw caution to the wind, give zero Fs, you know, sorry, I don't mean to curse too bad, but give zero Fs. And if you go in there and just enjoy it, you're going to actually enjoy the sport and get mm-hmm. further into it and more out of it than putting your pressure on winning your first meet. Cause I got news for you. There's generally 90 people in, a, in an average meet and 89 of them went home without winning first place. They might win their weight class or mm-hmm. they might win their division, but that's not actually winning. Winning is the top lifter and that's the only person who actually wins. So you don't have to go in with that expectation. Your, your goal is to just have fun, enjoy, meet people and improve from meet to meet, hopefully over time and get experience. So yeah, get, get out of the way. Take I action. Wish, get I wish I would have competed earlier. Like I think I waited a year and a half before I actually like competed. And I, looking back on it now, I wish I would have just like done yeah, one of the first six fun. months. You know. 
throw caution to the wind and enjoy it. Yeah. All right. So remember, you guys can ask questions here on the live. We have a bunch of questions that we got from our Q&As throughout the week that we'll go into a little more detail here. And then since we are talking about first time meat, um, somebody had asked about weight cuts. She came to the uh, Liberation Barbell Seminar. She's really tiny. I think she's trying to make 97 pounds. She weighs maybe 105. <laughs> oh, re-18? Uh, re yeah. Re-18? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So she wanted to know about top tips to lose like five to seven pounds. I'm like, man, that's that's almost 10% of your body weight. But... <laughs> 10% is like the, the max that they consider healthy. Mm -hmm. Nothing about a weight cut is healthy. I gotta be honest with you. You are going through a depletion. Your body's gonna lose minerals. Your body's gonna lose water. You are temporarily dehydration. None of that process is healthy. So I wanna, that's why I wanted to go in great detail. Um, if you are breaking a significant record, and I say significant because your division state record is not significant. You know, if you're a master's 35 to 39 in the middle of Idaho and nobody else holds that record, it's not a big deal. It's not a significant record. If it's like an American record, a world record, um, uh, you know, trying to get a qualifying total for an invite only meet, those are reasons when you might want to consider doing a water manipulation or a weight cut. If you're not at that level, you shouldn't be focusing on that because it's not worth the risks. And there are risks involved when you do a water cut. Most people don't understand it as a water cut, not a weight cut. So people will start dieting down too hard or losing too much weight and they lose strength. And like we talked about at the beginning, they add a significant amount more stress to the prep that they shouldn't be doing because the whole idea of peaking is to minimize stress, yeah. maximize performance. If you aren't very familiar with weight cuts and water cuts, you probably shouldn't be doing them. The risk beats out the rewards. Now, that being said, if you're going to do a water cut, you need to practice this ahead of time to see how you respond. And it should be far enough away from your meat that it's not going to affect your meat prep or performance. You don't want to do your first weight cut the day before weigh-ins. Because if you haven't ever done it before, it's a process. It's a process that starts almost a week out of water and sodium loading and carbohydrate loading for most systems. And then as the week trickles on, some people will trickle down the water. Some people will keep adding more and more and more water. So the body wants to flush it out and completely take it away at the last minute. There's sweating tactics involved, be it sauna, hot baths. Um, uh, wearing sauna gear and walking outside, whatever, you know, like sweatsuits and stuff like that. But more importantly than the process of losing the water is the recomp. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, when they start to minimize their food and dial down their, their eating habits and get very, very concise with their food, they go in and they instantly eat whatever they want because they're starving and they're angry. And then they can't eat the rest of the day because they're in terrible pain. Yep. They haven't rehydrated enough that they can go through diastasis where their, their body will parasols where their body will absorb the nutrients in their stomach and help it digest it because there's liquid in there. So they go through this very uncomfortable, and I've done it. I did it for my room eight cut where I dropped 19 pounds. Um, I stupidly wasn't hydrated enough yet and I didn't do an IV and I tried to eat with my family and I was doubled over in pain for eight hours. I couldn't really get my weight back up. I never got back to where I cut from for that meat. Uh, I was done. I faded halfway through bench. That looks like I got just my opener. That was it. And, um, so that was a learning experience that I did everything right as far as the diet, a cut, I had RP performance take me through it, but there wasn't a protocol for recomp that I understood. I should have had an IV. I should have gone liquids first. I should have given myself time. You know, you don't want thick, dense, heavy foods until you're peeing mm -hmm. because if you're going to eat thick, dense foods, if you're not already peeing back, I mean, the body's flushing the water through, then you're going to be in a lot of pain when you go to eat and you have to start with very simple carbohydrates and not a lot of fats and not a lot of protein. You have to build your way up throughout the day to replenish that. So if you don't understand the process, I think it's really important that you shouldn't be doing it. And if it's not worth it, like a significant reason to compete, you definitely shouldn't be doing it just so you can be more competitive. You know how you get more competitive? Put in time and get stronger. Almost everyone has a better Wilkes when they go up a weight class because they've been eating and adding muscle.
Very rarely does someone have a better Wilkes by depleting themselves down. Very rare. Yeah, I've seen some really questionable uh, weight cut tactics too, where people will go like 48 hours of no eating. Mm-hmm. They'll do like um, mag citrate flushes, you know, and like drink like three bottles of like mag citrate and then they're like totally depleted. And then like Trevor mentioned, aren't really sure how to like recomp. Because you lose minerals when you do that. Now yeah. granted in my process, I do use magnesium citrate like, you know, a day and a half before so I can get any poop out because poop can be three to five well, that's pounds. that's fine, but like people are <laughs> chugging like right. two to three bottles and then they're well, they like they overdo it. Eating. They yeah. over deplete mm-hmm. and they're never able to hydrate back up and they don't understand what they've lost from their body so they don't replenish it and their performance goes way down and they don't enjoy the experience i always recommend that any whether they're cutting or not any lifter that i coach i always recommend that on the day the day uh after or after weigh-ins that they're eating like normal foods you know like you don't obviously like everyone's like oh i'm so hungry i want to eat everything and then they go to load up on a whole bunch of stuff and like trevor mentioned they don't um you know, hydrate enough or like get enough of the electrolytes back in their system. But eating random things that you never eat before after weigh-ins is also probably not good. That may not go well for you on meat day. Eating weird things on meat day doesn't go over well. Stop trying to do new st- new things that you had no idea how your body's going to respond to. Just right. like you mentioned with the water cut. Like if you've never done it before, you should probably try it out to know like, Okay, I lose approximately four pounds. I lose How you respond five to the pounds. water load, how yeah. you respond to the depletion phase. So you know what your average drop is, then you're gonna know how much you have to sweat out. Yep. Because there are some people who will do a water load and depletion and only lose one or two pounds. Yep. And there are people who will do a water load and depletion and lose seven, eight pounds. Mm-hmm. You need to know how you respond to that so you know how much you legitimately have to sweat out. Yep. Then you have to start figuring out what is your sweat rate. I know what my sweat rate is. So I know that my first bath, I tend to lose about a pound and a half. My second bath becomes like a pound. By the third bath, it's like a half pound and so forth. So it's a very slow process from then on out. So I know my depletion rate, but I also know my my rehydration rate. I know what I need to replenish, what is what is diminished from my body, which is usually minerals, carbohydrates, sodium, and so forth. I'm prioritizing fluids, minerals, and carbohydrates, not proteins and fats, because that's gonna make it so you can't actually eat. Because when your stomach is shriveled and dehydrated, it's just gonna expand in there and it's gonna hurt bad. You're not gonna be able to eat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we I had see a question. Words. Yeah, <laughs> I see. I see words. I, I see dead people. I can't read. Them, but I can <laughs> you can't read. I, I I can't read. I never learned to read. I never learned how to read. <laughs> See your lips moving? Okay, I got the words. She wants to know if she does landmine belt squats in her power rack, will that transfer over to her regular squats? Uh, so, hold on, sorry, what's the question? She, she asked it in two segments. Oh, okay. She says, using my landmine in my rack for a belt squat, does that have a good carryover to regular squats? Yes and no. Um, it is a great way to add volume specifically for your legs. Mm-hmm. The caveat of belt squats is it's not challenging your torso which in a raw squat is where most people will lose their squats. They'll lose their squats in their torso, be it low back or core strength or shoulder you know, mobility, whatever, stuff like that. So it's a great way to add an additional volume as far as training leg size. Mm-hmm. You're probably not gonna get significant leg strength or squat strength from the belt squat itself. Um, you're building potential strength by adding more leg size or, or hypertrophy to that and stuff like that. And it's an, another benefit of that is you're training the squat pattern without fatiguing your torso because that is the slowest to recover. Mm-hmm. You know, very few people can go into a gym and do 10 sets of 10 squats, but they might be able to do three or three to five sets of heavy squats and maybe three to five more sets of belt squats to get all the leg volume they need and not actually kill their, their torso. So it's really going to depend upon what your individual needs are. If your torso is the weak link in your squat, no, that belt squat's not going to carry over at all to your squat because you're not building your weak link, which is a torso. If the legs are the weak link, then the belt squat's very beneficial because that's what you're building. As l- I feel like as long as you're 
um, using that belt squat in a way that matches your squat pattern too. Like as long as you're, you know, squatting in the same stance and hitting that same pattern, it is practice on your pattern if that's a little bit weaker for you too. So like with beginner intermediate lifters, I like to practice their pattern multiple times a week or multiple times with different movements. So like, um, they can get that movement down, especially if we're working on something new, like either a newer hinge or whatever it is, their pattern. So I feel like if you're landmine belt squat setup mimics your squat pattern that's going to benefit to you too because you get more practice like more frequency um practicing your squat pattern right but yes i agree you're limited by the uh piece of equipment yeah and then quad father 906 i dm you for coaching but i see on your page you're highly recommended uh if that might be in my request those get flooded with spam so i don't check them very often there's a tab in my page where you can email me i suggest email me if you're inquiring about coaching because that that request thing is just flooded with spam so i don't check it very often Spam. But I appreciate, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's usually like you get a bunch of those, hey, would you like to add thirty to 50,000 followers and get real engagement? Like, no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do that. Or a bunch of like random people who want me to represent their like, you know, their their potato protein chip or their testicle shavers and whatever. Mm. <laughs> testicle shavers. Yeah, I can't I, remember. What, yeah. what was that one called? Uh, ball Ball something. something. She even got it. <laughs> I think I had four women who got it too. It wasn't the Manscaped, it was a competing no. product. Smooth balls. Smooth balls or something, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. free shout out for smooth balls if that's it. Yeah, whatever. Um, one question we got on from the Q&A was, what would you say was the best way to obtain clients, powerlifting or personal training? I think this is a good question. It's a great way um, to obtain clients, whether it's personal training or powerlifting, is just demonstrate first a desire to help somebody. Mm-hmm. It, you know, somebody commented yesterday in my post, like, I can't believe you answer all these questions for free. It's like, that's my way of giving back and helping more people. Even if they're not clients, I'm helping them and hopefully they'll help somebody else and keep passing that down the line. If you don't have an actual desire to truly help people and you're just looking for some side income or business, people are going to see through that. Mm-hmm. So if you're not trying to actively help the community and share and grow the powerhousing community or the strength community, you're going to struggle. If you're a trainer in a big box gym and you, you could look fantastic. But if you're not demonstrating that you were there to help people change their lives, be better, exercise better, perform better, hurt less, whatever it is you're going to specialize in, people aren't going to reach out to you because you just look like someone who who rides the clock and gets paid to ride the clock and sit there. I used to manage commercial gyms, fitness, uh, and 24 Fitness, and, and we had different trainers. You know, there was five trainers who were pretty much always full and always busy, and we hung out in the Freewood area. And then I had like four or five more trainers who were like part-time, who weren't very busy and always complained they didn't have enough clients. Who would sit their client on a machine and then have a clock and sit there and talk to them and everybody in the gym would see how lazy that trainer was no offense but if that trainer is taking someone who sits at a desk all day and then sits them on the machine and then just counts reps that's fucking lazy mm-hmm. versus the sorry, i'm already cursing <laughs> versus the trainer who's in the free area who's grabbing weights joking people moving around getting people moving throwing circuits together whatever you're actively participating in their result so the the, the biggest recommendation i can give you is actively participate in their result whether they're your client or not because if you're helping one person and then you're helping another person and then you're helping another person people are going to see that mm-hmm. and even if that isn't your client you're helping somebody might ask them hey do you know who i should work with you know who can help me and you're gonna say that guy's great he helps everybody go talk to him or her and so forth and that's how that's going to happen you know you're going to it's going to grow through reciprocity the more people you help the more you're helping yourself Yes, I 100% agree. You have to be willing to help people and stop expecting things for helping people. You know, like if you're only helping someone because you're hoping to gain from it, um, I feel like that's pretty easily seen through, yes. in my opinion. So 
like be altruistic in the fact that you're actually trying to help people get better and explain that. And also your attitude will totally define how well people approach you or how many people want to approach you. And we've mentioned this before on previous podcasts to where, you know, if your main source of acquiring clients is the internet, but every day that you post, you're like, man, today was, was shit. Worst and day of my life. I hate it. I hate every day. And if, if you're like, everything, everything is terrible and I hate all of this and blah, 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 but DM me for coaching. Yeah. Uh, I don't take you personally. I don't take you seriously. Uh, you're Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh and no yeah. one wants to be around you. And you know, like, Part of a coach's job is instilling confidence and also um, having a positive outlook and finding the finding the wins as well as the negatives too. But like, you know, majority of people aren't going to want someone who just isn't Eeyore all the time. Like I wouldn't want a coach that every day was like, hey, cool, that's great, okay, great. You know, like I don't want, I don't want that. So how your attitude and how you come across on the internet, if that's your same, if that's your prime way of finding clients is really important and also how you come across in person as well. Yep. Um, you know, if you're meeting personal training clients in person and you seem very disinterested and you're not making eye, eye contact, you're not asking engaging questions, you're not actually showing that you're, um, you know, involved in what it is that their goal is, you're probably not going to get hired. I wouldn't hire someone like that. I want someone that pays attention to what I said. So if I said, okay, this is my goal. And later on in the day, they're like, uh, so what's your goal? So you weren't listening right. to me the first time. So pay attention to people, um, give value without expecting anything in return and also have a positive attitude. Yeah. Be genuine. Listen. Like Riley said, mm -hmm. be enthusiastic, be positive because you know, they're coming to you for sometimes an escape. And mm -hmm. Brandon just commented, you know, um, body by Brandon, hundred kilogram. He's out of depth before designer gym. And he works with people in person and online as well. And he talks about it. And my clients come to better themselves and to come to me to have a fun experience with me. Yep. So, you know, if people are dreading being around you, it's very, very hard to draw them in to work with you. Even if you have an exceptional educational background or experience, if you're just a really, really negative person all the time, no one wants to be around that. It's very, very difficult for someone to reach out and ask you for help because they're like, man, I'm going to absorb his negativity or her negativity. And they don't want that. So. Energy vampires. Energy vampires, people mm -hmm. who drain from you. So, you know, you don't, you don't have to fake it, but you know, if you're having a bad day, it's okay. You don't have to let the world know you had a bad day. The internet doesn't need to know your problems. Yeah. <laughs> they really don't. It doesn't help you to share your problems unless your problems are over and done with and you're, you know, hey, hey I passed all this. It's great. But if you're like crying, woe is me. And if they're um, self-inflicted, go over Yeah, yourself. yeah. Most of these problems are self-inflicted. We live in the best country in the world. You have all this freedom and choice, so it's great. But, you know, be be a beacon of positivity. Yeah. Because that's going to draw more people in than repel people away. And yep. so that doesn't matter if you're in person or online. It's just demonstrate that you can help, demonstrate that you really care, and, and be something positive that people can look up to or aspire to be like or just generally want to be around. Yeah, right. be a consistent figure. Yep. Right, we had a question up here. How long would you recommend using wraps before competing in them? Um, the week before. I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, where is he going with I've this? I've actually <laughs> been at a meet where someone signed up for wraps accidentally and they're like, yeah, I just put them on a week before because I don't know. I'm like, you, you know, you could switch divisions, right? They could, they could just put you in sleeves. It's not a big deal. They didn't know that. They actually were like, yeah, I'm going to do the wraps. I tried them once before. It's okay. I'm like, okay. Didn't go very well. Um, generally, if someone's new to wraps and they have a lot of time, like let's say they're four or five months away, I'll have them do a block in wraps to get experience with them, feel them, take them back out. Usually once someone more experienced with them, somewhere between eight and 11 weeks before the competition, they'll be in wraps. Uh, I don't like training in wraps year round. You want to build your raw squat to build your wrap squat because the, the wraps are an assistance. 
and it's an overload to your back because you're using somewhere between five to 15% more load on your back. So it's not something you keep in year round. It's something you build up in between and put on before the competition. So unless newer... you're Derek, <laughs> unless you're Derek and you have no knee cartilage, <laughs> poor Derek, zero knee cartilage from wrestling. He's had both of them removed. So he even has to light wrap on his other days. And we, we worked in sleeves here and there, but, but this does fun. not apply to the general masses. Yeah, you all have your knee no. cartilage. Yeah. You, if you have your knee cartilage, you should probably only have them on like eight to 11 weeks before. If you've never used them before, before, take time yeah. to put them on for a block of like four to six weeks, get used to them, then take them back off and rebuild your bottom position. Because if you're always in wraps, you're weakening the bottom position of your squat yeah. because of the assistance out of the hole. So you want to make sure that you don't rely on that all the time. You're going to have a very weak, low squat unless you're Derek and you have no knee cartilage. <laughs> I do the same thing though, where I give like a block um, of them. I know a lot of lifters get like really nervous to not not to like go a long time without wraps on like you don't forget how the first week yeah. might be like the first awkward. week is weird because it's a different pattern yeah so you're getting used to it so the first week might be a little bit awkward which is why you don't um, start at 100 percent. you yeah. start at 80 yeah or and an so rpe you, that's it's comfortable yeah you groove them a little bit more um but that falls in line though with the action alleviates anxiety because that's why we use that first block if somebody hasn't gone to wraps because mm -hmm. you, you take the action, you try the wraps because it alleviates that anxiety, you know what it feels like, and then you rebuild and come back to them. Yeah. Versus if you've never tried them, you don't want to just put them on seven, eight weeks before your first meet. Like, okay, here we go. Because there is a learning curve for some people. Yeah, especially like uh, choosing like the right wraps for your style and like all these other little small intricate details. But yeah, I like to do the same where I give like one block um, yeah. of learning it, take some time off, continue to pattern the raw squat and then throw them on. Usually I do like eight to 10 weeks. This man, Bubba says, bro, as you get old, you will wrap everything. I am old. You didn't get the memo. I am over 40, I'm 41. By the time I compete, I'll be 42. I am old, zero excuses. Uh, I don't even compete in wraps. I'm missing an adductor. I don't think I can anymore. Um, probably never gonna wrap because I don't need the ego hit. I, I'm okay with what I lift in sleeves. Uh, you, you're gonna use wraps because you wanna lift more or you wanna continue lifting. I always see that people like they gravitate towards gear or they gravitate towards wrap because I'm old. That's that's an excuse you tell yourself that you have to use some kind of like patch or duct tape. No, no offense to you. Uh, I don't mean to offend you, but really that's an excuse because if you understand the exercise and the intent, you can always train around and work around something and build strength somewhere. If you have a deficiency, throwing on a support system isn't building the deficiency. It's, it's only in, yes, you're increasing the deficiency but never addressing it. Yeah, it's a band-aid. Yeah. Those are lame. I'm already old though, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. Shoulder pain during low bar. It's much stronger than my high bar. What to do? Uh, this is, we've talked about this on many yeah. podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I, I did, I don't know if I answered that in my story. I don't believe you I did because there were so many questions and some of them came in late. Um, okay, so 40 is not old. I've been, I've been lifting for 29 years. I've been like aged and I've been competing for almost 16. So I'm a dinosaur in this sport. But, um, my, my pterodactyl. Yeah, <laughs> I want to be a brontosaurus, damn it. <laughs> Although I'm a meat eater. Um, you don't want a low bar all the time. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of specialty bars and high bar for this reason because nothing is more detrimental to most lifters than low bar squats. Yep. But again, like the ego hit, you can squat significantly more low bar. So put the low bar in undulated either every other week or only when you're peaking for meat. Like, uh, a great example of that, Charlie. We only put low bar in when he's prepping for a meet. Other than that, we use a specialty bar or high bar. And every time his high bar goes up, so does his low bar. You know, he just squatted 700 in sleeves without training low bar. The first time he put the, he put the SSB setting at low bar on the transformer, he squatted 705, I think, mm -hmm. right? 
and they were putting the wraps on and going back to low bar and you know the first session you put in low bar everything got tight and jacked up it's one of those things where you have to understand when and where to use something you can't always use it all the time low bar gives you an advantage because it puts the bar down lower and closer to your hips which gives you more leverage but it's detrimental to a lot of lifters shoulders some can get away with it and never have a problem other people right away they get the biceps and denitis or the compression pain or the elbow pain if you're one of those unlucky people don't train your low bar very often cycle it in Maybe put it in for one block and then go to high bar or go to SSB or Cambridge bar or whatever. It's going to keep going up. If your low bar yeah. is already your strong, your strongest variation, training the harder variations that you suck at is only going to continue to bring up. up your strongest variations. Yep. And so I've seen people do that where yeah. the low bar is really strong mm -hmm. and their high bar is like 200 pounds less. Well, that's how you're going to get your low bar up yes. is shrink that gap. Get better at the high bar, you know, or get better at the specialty bar. People are afraid to do that because then they can't put up their Instagram video with their max weights. Like, I don't even list weights. Yeah. Yeah, they too much. Just there's too, there's too much like there's too much like a frailty among like our egos and that like I mean it happens for everyone. Like there's there's things for each of us sure. that we're egotistical about. So I don't know. Like I would personally rather improve on the things that I suck at. Um, I'd personally rather improve upon the things that I suck at rather than continue to maybe boost the thing that I'm better at. But like if my low bar is my strongest, but my high bar is super, super weak, if I improve my high bar, that's only gonna to continue to take the parking brake off of my low bar and right. make my low bar stronger. So like, so if your low bar is significantly stronger, that means there's a weakness in the chain, that's probably your quads, you need to emphasize your quads and it's gonna be kinder to your shoulders. Yeah, and who doesn't love better quads? I love better quads. <laughs> we talked to. I'm talking to the, the, the camera. <laughs> Making love to the camera. <laughs> uh, any tips to help improve lockout at sumo? I keep having problems when reaching top singles. Um, generally, this is going to sound strange. That's a head position issue. If you are losing the top balance at the, at the top, you have a head position issue where you don't know where to put your head when you finish. And if you look at some of the wide flared Russian lifters, their head goes all the way back and create an anchor point that's behind them. If you look at some of the more narrow uh, American style pullers, um, like a Jamal, his chin is in and down. That's going to put him in center line with his hips. It keeps his neck the nuts in the same line kind of position. So you just have to figure out based off your style. I don't see it. It's a question that you said because I don't have your style to see. But chances are you have your head in the wrong position when you're finishing that. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're, you're losing and losing at the top. Um, because other than that, it's either a glute issue or a stability issue at the top where your head's in the wrong position. Yeah, I noticed that. I see a lot of people drop the bar when they... For majority of the lifters that I see anyways at pull sumo, when they, the further they look down, the harder it is for them to lock out because right. they're keeping their chest down. So then everything's the all like goes down. compacted right. and then they start like riding up the quads rather than keeping everything open and the head neutral. We saw that at the ghost meet. There was a very strong young man who had squatted a ton, bench a ton, and then almost bombed out of the meet. He only got his third deadlift. He missed yeah. his opener. He missed his second. And Alex Oslar, who's his coach, was like, dude, lift your fucking head up. Yeah. Because he was lifting with his chin and his head down. He was falling every time he was coming up so fast. It was just throwing him around. He, the only thing he changed was tilting his head back and he nailed it. And it's like, you just had, took three attempts to get your opener. That's why you open light in the first place. But, <laughs> but it, it kept him in the meat and he almost lost it because of that. Yeah, those are small things I think people tend to overlook that are more important than you think. You guys prefer Chuck Taylors or Vans for lifting? Uh, for squatting, I prefer Vans for deadlifting because I pull sumo. I like to wedge my toes in for the sumo on the Chuck Taylors or my Sabo deadlift shoes. Uh, I prefer Vans for all of them. I find that with Chucks, they, gener they generally like 
twist up at the top and then I have a harder time like yeah, keeping my toes down. For squats. Yeah, they have a little harder time keeping my toes down. Um, generally, actually for squats, I prefer something that's really, really flat. Like I have, um, I have these Jordans that are basically like wrestling shoes. And so they basically have no, um, no sole on the bottom. Like my feet are as low to the ground as it possibly can be without being barefoot. So you so have I, no sole. Yes, that's correct. I am soulless. Um, so I use those for squats and then I use sabos for deadlifts. Um, I can, I, I guess I'd rather, if I was choosing the two, I'd probably choose Vans for both rather than Converse. Yeah, the Vans just have a little bit, they're both flat shoes, but the Vans have a little bit of a wider base than the Chuck Taylors. The Chuck Taylors tend to be kind of narrow. So unless you're a very wide stance squatter who wedges into the outside of the shoe, which most raw squatters aren't. I mean, occasionally you do see that. You do see that, but they're like one out of 10. So if you're more of a medium or narrow stance raw squatter, chances are you probably want the wider base shoe than the, yeah. the, the narrow shoe of the Chuck. Um, it's one of those though that it's not gonna make that big of a difference. Whether you're in Chucks or Vans, it's probably making so minute of a difference, it doesn't matter. Whatever's uh, more comfortable Whatever's for you. more comfortable, whatever you like. I have both, I have an obsession with shoes and so I have probably about 40 pairs of Vans and Chucks. No exaggeration. <laughs> I'm staring at a rack of like 20 shoes that I haven't even worn in two years, but they're just sitting there. All kinds of colors and stuff, but. It's not going to matter that much. I've, I've probably squatted and pulled just as much barefoot within 1% as I have in Vans and Chucks. It doesn't matter. Yep. Uh, should we answer the uh, the nerd or blue collar question? Yeah, it was a really strange question. So I want to answer because it's a strange question. Okay. So can initial low strength people, quote unquote nerds, realistically catch up to naturally stronger people such as farm raised or blue collar people? I love the assumption there. I find this to be a little bit of a mindset thing um, versus, you know, like actual ability. Like, yes, obviously people that are farm raised or blue collar are going to have a little bit more practice uh, lifting things, you know, like they're going to be, they have lifted things their whole life. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, versus a quote unquote nerd who maybe has never lifted in their life before. Yeah, they're going to have a little bit of a learning curve but that doesn't mean that your potential for strength isn't also potentially the same as theirs right it just means that they've been practicing a little bit longer than you are so in turn you're probably just rushing the process that you started potentially 10 years later than these people sure you know i i think it from a little bit different perspective the way this person asks this question makes me laugh though What's different between, and I'm going to use his verbiage, a nerd and a blue collar is probably work, work ethic. ethic yep. Thank you. Right my mind. <laughs> work ethic. Yep. You know, when you grow up on a farm or you, you play team sports, uh, I did none, none of them in high school. I wasn't an athlete at all. Um, you learn a work ethic. And if you were a nerd, and I kind of was, but if you're a nerd, although I wasn't into like the Dungeons and Dragons, sorry, Dave Osborne, he's probably like all pissed. I was never into like Harry Potter, Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons or anime. That was all after my time. But, um... I just was more into movies and music and things like that, but not playing it, just listening to it and doing absolutely nothing. I was a slacker. <laughs> I was a complete slacker. Um, and eating Pringles. Right, eating Pringles on the couch <laughs> watching TV. But your work ethic, that was the slowest thing for me to develop was how to not be lazy, how to develop my work ethic. And someone who grows up on a farm or has chores or has responsibilities and stuff like that learns that from an earlier age. We have clients that come from different backgrounds. And she has a client that she always talks about who has a very blue-collar background. Mm -hmm. And Phil Hernan was the same way, a very blue-collar background. It's just exceptional work ethic. This There's guy, no quitting. Yeah, the kid literally got hit by a car 
and uh, went to the gym the next day, and she had somebody else who was also hit by the car. Like, I'm gonna take like three weeks off, you know. The one who was hit by the car was the work ethic was like more banged up than the other person because he was on his bicycle. The other person was in their car. <laughs> I would like I would like to also add that I have had three clients that have been hit by a car in some capacity. So if my clients could stop getting hit by cars, that would be great. Hannah's fault. <laughs> <laughs> but the work ethic is what determines how far you will get. Yes, I agree with that. 100%. And that's in the mind. That's truly in your mind because somebody who has a no quit, balls out work ethic and will keep going will get stronger and get competitively stronger. And a great example of this is, um, uh, I'm dropping his name, Nerds Who Lift Podcast. Nicholas Anderson. Nicholas Anderson. <laughs> we were talking about this. Nicholas Anderson comes from what you would typically call a nerd. He refers to himself as a nerd. He has a podcast, Nerds Who Lift. Shout out to him there. And, you know, he's more into those things. And when he started, he was not very strong and didn't have that background. But here we are probably four years later. Yeah, I think so. And he just developed like a tremendous amount of body. Like what he lacked in the beginning was body awareness, body awareness. because he was never yep. like necessarily now. He didn't quit. Mm -hmm. He developed work ethic. He developed a network of friends who would encourage him, give him advice and do things and help him along the way. And I'm pretty sure he's pulling around 600 right now. I think, yeah, I think we're getting pretty close. And I think when he started, he was pulling like 300. Yeah. 345 is like a max. Um, he's squatting above 500 and pulling around 600. It just goes to show you, you will get as far as your work ethic will take you. So if you lack a work ethic, that's as far as you're going to get until you develop that work ethic. Well, and regardless, like I think about, I think about people like, so we're talking about Nicholas Anderson, you mm -hmm. know, he never complained about doing the work either. And nope. that's one thing that I see pretty often. I think he like, wanted more work. He is like, honestly, from the time I've met him, he's always been like, okay, I'll do, I'll do whatever it takes to get stronger and whatever. And, you know, never complain about any of these things. And I think that's really important too, is like, you know, if you're, if you say that you want to get stronger and you want to match this potential that these quote unquote farm raised or blue collar people, um, have, then you have to be willing to put in the time and the work, pay your dues to get to like earn these things. And you can't complain about the work along the way, right. you know, like, we elect to choose this. And obviously there are going to be some really hard days where we're like, damn, that sucked. You know, like that workout sucked. But you you choose to do this. So you either do it and, and get better or you complain about it. And then you consistently uh, fall back on the idea that you're a nerd. So you're not built to be as strong as them. Right. Um, you know, I played sports my whole entire life. Like I've always been in a team sport. So I've always had like that type of work ethic. But that it's still not doesn't come easy to me. Like. I'm struggling more now in my lifting than I ever have. And I think that the only thing that is helping me with that is the fact that I've already kind of been through that with like different sports, mm -hmm. you know, like I've been through the, like, man, I'm really sucking at this. I don't even think I'm good at this anymore kind of phase before. And I've been through it and you just keep working through that. But I think that this question shows a, dra a drastic mind shift a drastic mindset shift is needed, basically. Um, you're limiting yourself by thinking that because you're quote unquote nerdy that you can't be strong, right. you know? And like, what is strength? Strength is relative to each person. So what do you define as what strong? What is uh, Griggs, Grigsby? Oh, Dan. Dan, Dan Grigsby, Grand, mm -hmm. I'm saying it right. He owns the uh, 242 all-time deadlift record, I believe, or 220 all-time deadlift record. It's 242 mm -hmm. maybe. I don't remember. But he's super nerdy. <laughs> he's also super jacked and super strong yeah. and pulls like 950 somewhere around there. Like your your entertainment choices, whether you're nerdy or like jock based, don't determine your strength potential, your mindset. Does. And your work ethic. And your work ethic. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. I think that those need to be big shifts.
Joey Betts, training biceps seems to have a bad misconception powerlifting, meaning people rarely train them. Can you guys touch on that? Bicep training powerlifting, it's probably my fault. I hate training biceps. He really does. <laughs> I have bashed training biceps for years. Tongue in cheek. I actually do my curls. Uh, curls are important to some degree for your elbow health. Your biceps are contracted during the eccentric phase of the bench press as part of your bench press stability and control. Um, people are scared to train them because they worry about tearing them on the deadlift. It has nothing to do with your biceps as far as tearing on the deadlift. It has everything to do with your lack of mobility and you can't externally rotate to deep set your hands. And when people start internally rotating and then the arm bends and flexes because they can't get to the bar, that's when that bicep goes because the load on the bicep succeeds its strength capability. So it's not that biceps are a bad thing, but it's, it's not necessarily a priority either. Like mm -hmm. you don't need to knock out 12 sets of biceps because how big they are or how good they look isn't as impressive as how, how functional they really are within the bench press movement. They're not gonna contribute to the, the deadlift or the squat obviously, but they do help control the elbow and shoulder health on your bench press. Uh, one of the best benchers of all time, Ryan Kennelly would knock out like four sets of 20 with like 10 to 15 pound dumbbells before he would bench to pump up his biceps because it helped with the eccentric control, especially in the suit because the bigger his arms got, the tighter that suit got, the more power he had off of his, his uh, geared bench. Um, so that's something I can help you as well. I have a Jensen, he's a master's lifter as well, although he competes open like I do, but he loves training his biceps, especially sneaks him in with bench sets because it helps his shoulder health with the bench. So it's not a bad thing. It just doesn't need to be a priority where you need to do like single arm cable curls to make them look good or preacher curls. You're better off just knocking out some hammer curls and reverse curls to work on the brachioradialis and the brachialis and the bicep itself to help with that eccentric control of the bench press. But I wouldn't neglect them. I just wouldn't prioritize them. Well, they're also more known as like a vanity muscle in general. Sure. So I think that that's why powerlifters skip them because they're like, well, I don't really need my biceps. You know, I need my back. I need my shoulders more and whatever. So I think that it's just more of like how they're viewed. Um, like I know strongmen uh, training has a lot more bicep work in it because you're carrying a lot more awkward things. And why would you not want to build up the smaller muscles around this muscle, like around your muscle groups um, to help support everything else? You know, like strongman training, you're carrying stones and who's fells and things like that. So like they're going to train every muscle that they possibly can to get stronger. So realistically, you should apply that to powerlifting as well. Like, are your biceps going to do everything for you? No, but them getting stronger isn't necessarily going to hurt your press or Correct. hurt anything like that. Yeah. If anything, it can support it. Most of the stronger benchers usually have pretty big arms. Yep. So and that's bicep and tricep. I wouldn't necessarily prioritize one or the other, but you know, big benchers usually have big arms, so train your arms. We have a lot of people trying to like nerd power. Robert is like a mid fours bencher. He's a big nerd. <laughs> Kyle mentioned that he started off with like 180 pounds as a nerd. That's Barbell Viking. He's like 270 right now or 280, maybe even higher. I don't know. And but it just goes to show you that if both you both of these people are yeah, strong as shit. Strong as shit. <laughs> It's like one of those things that if you if you want to do this, you're going to have to develop the discipline and the work ethic. Yeah. That's where it really comes from is discipline and work ethic because like Riley said, you're going to have bad days and that's where your discipline kicks over and your work ethic kicks in and you keep going because strength is a long journey, not a short journey. Yeah. I probably have time for one more question, you right. think? You think? I'm sure we do. Um, Although the urge to pee is strong. Okay, we'll do, we'll do, we'll do one more then. No, no, so, put them all in there. I like the pain. Um, <laughs> I like to play a game with myself. It's how much I can tolerate. Um, how can I get more lat activation in my deadlift? Ah, this is great. I have a couple of different videos up on there. I've talked about forward setting bands where the bands are pulling the bar forward. I love that, by the way. It's a great one. Mm -hmm. I've also talked about putting the bands around your forearm. So when you externally rotate, you're getting your lats to lock in tension. It's also how you set your hands. Like when I talked about the bicep tear, that if you're internally rotating, you chest start, you're not going to get your lats involved because they are a slight external tear of your shoulder. So there's lots of different ways to do this. What I don't like and where people get this wrong is they will do this on their work sets. All these tools and tricks and tactics of the forward banded bar 
or bending your shoulders where you have to pull apart and come through. I've even put on a um, Thompson bow tie because mm -hmm. a Thompson bow tie makes you depress your scapula and as you depress your scapula, you're activating your lats. Uh, I have a video up on that as well. All these things are teaching tools to help you learn the position. If you are using those tools beyond the warmups, you're failing yourself because now you're relying on the tool. Yep. You have to do your work sets and just be patient and practice position and practice tension without them. You're using those as proprioceptive tool to feel out in space what you need to what you need to tense and tighten and calm the move. But if you're using them with the work sets, you're going to rely on them. And when it comes down to the meet time, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do because you don't have the tool. You can't wear these things in the meet and do these things. Yeah, sometimes I'll give like I love the forward banded things. Like um, a lot of the times for an ex for a secondary movement, I'll give like a barbell RDL with bands pulling from the front mm -hmm. because one, it still mimics the deadlift pattern, and it also forces you to keep your lats just as tight as you would with your right. deadlift pattern so you're not being you're not getting reliant on the band or like the assistance tool like trevor's talking about but you're still getting that movement in but i find that to be that type of movement like a forward banded uh deadlift like in your warm-ups i find that one to be really really beneficial for people that don't have a lot of body awareness like maybe they weren't an athlete or a bodybuilder or whatever because yeah so, <laughs> so if you uh you know like a lot of times if you tell people like find your lats people are going to be like okay i know where they are but i've never felt them mm -hmm. before like if you haven't ever isolated a muscle group before just telling someone to find your lats is like that doesn't help anyone they're like cool i know where it's at but i don't yeah, know how it's to no feel different them. than saying find your elbow yeah you know, you know so, where it is but you don't know how to feel it yeah so you know by doing that banded forward thing you actually like there's resistance on that bar so you're going to actually pack the bar right. into you um so i find that one to be one of the more beneficial and helpful things for beginner intermediate lifters who maybe don't have that super yep. sense of body awareness. Just don't make the mistake of using it on your working sets because yep. then you're not building a position or a pattern, you're building a habit of relying on the tool. The whole point of that last warm up with the tool on is to be like, okay, this is what it feels like. Let me take that same sort of tension and apply that to the next set. Because if you can feel the tension, but you can't apply it yourself without right. the tool, then you you're to not actually how. teaching yourself yep. anything. And that's the point of the tool, the RNT tool. RNT stands for reactive neuromuscular training. And that's what these tools do is they help you. They are a neuromuscular facilitator to help you feel what you should be tight, what you should be using within the movement. And then you have to mimic it with more weight, more patterns. So that's something you should do. Yeah. Uh, you have to pee as well. <laughs> You're just flexing. Yeah. You flexing on the camera. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You're right. welcome. Because it's upper body day on Thursday, so she got that pump going. <laughs> yeah, get a nice pump. I have to show off. We came out of like the 105 degree garage, changed our clothes that were dry, and come on here. I All didn't right. change. Yeah, I changed. I was like soaked. Um, bad. Look like you're walking out of a pool. Purify your soul in the waters of Lake Tonka. <laughs> Sorry, random Chappelle show reference. Um, and uh, purple rain. Purple rain. Purple yeah. rain. Yeah, Prince. Purple rain. <laughs> But the purple one. Me. So make sure you guys check out and follow the Culture Nutra page. Thanks for dropping questions in my story. Thanks for dropping questions in the live. Those Stay you tuned for us. the Culture Nutra launch, which will be launching on Monday when this podcast episode is Monday the 9th, Culture Nutra, culturenutra.com. We appreciate all you guys for the support. And of course, the podcast will be released on Monday. Culture Nutra launches on Monday. Please, if we would appreciate it, if you guys can share that with your story or whatever on your page to let people know that Culture Nutra exists yeah. so we can grow the community and help more people. It would be awesome. And love you all very much. Okay, thanks. Bye.